All right. So Ian Schmidt, holy crap, product designer, Kona, product manager. The dude is a yeah. badass. Um, product also, manager. Product manager. Uh, grew up a town away from where my wife did, the land of the Hodag in Wisconsin. People can look that up. Also worth noting, and with my apologies, we tried a new podcasting service for this one. Uh, and the audio, my audio sounds good, but I'm not sure what kind of weird janky computer you give to your product managers, but their microphone is not the best. So some of his stuff is a little scratchy. I apologize to the world at large, but it's totally worth listening to. Uh, and once you get used to it after the first minute or two, it's fine. Maybe Ian just has a, a weird voice. <laughs> Or he exists in some sort of like netherland of like, it's like weird internet space background noise, which I think the internet background noise is kind of the same as like the weird radio wave background noise that they get from outer space. So maybe it's okay. just alternate realities converging in which Ian is also, I don't know, a superhero and the mayor of Cincinnati. If anybody lives in some kind of crazy space world, it's probably Ian. And I mean that with the best intentions. <laughs> Ian is. He's one of those people that is so smart that he makes the world seem small to me when I talk to him. Or maybe, you know, that's wrong. He makes the world seem huge. He's constantly, I mean, it's funny at work, he'll be talking. And then I look around and a bunch of us are like looking up words online because we don't know what he's talking. We don't know what the words mean that he's saying. <laughs> he has an incredible lexicon. He is very smart, very good at his job. He's our, our head product manager. He is responsible for some of the bikes that have really propelled Kona forward in recent years. I think you know the process models are are his babies. He's he does a lot of work with the Hanzos, bikes like the Sutra, LTD, kind of Ian Brainchild, and even the Libre. Like those kind of crossover bikes that blur the line between mountain and gravelly road. Ian would call this big gravel. I don't know if you guys discussed big gravel at all, but cue the we DMX sure soundtrack and it's that's big gravel for you. So we did delve into big gravel um, at your request. We also talked about how every bike has a playlist, um, which I feel like is a perfect time to plug the fact that we now Kona Bikes has its own official Spotify account where you will be able to see playlists, not just from ambassadors, but there will be playlists that listeners can add to, including playlists for each individual bike model, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I think that's a, I think it's awesome. Even even Roscoe, the unofficial mascot of uh, the upstairs office at Kona, he's going to have a playlist. Wow. Um, yeah, he is really excited about it. We're going to get our athletes to make playlists Structural for playlist. us. Yeah, Rad. structural playlists. Yep. So. <laughs> We'll get Dan and Jake to make playlists too. Both those guys are plugged into the music scene and um, it should be pretty fun to have some tunes going with our with our bikes and the Kona vibes. Pretty fired up about it. Awesome. All right. Well, Lacey, thank you so much. Uh, everybody go listen to Ian Schmidt and learn how bikes are made. It should be really fascinating. So I hope everybody enjoys it. How you doing? I, how's release week? Uh, stressful. You know, it's uh, it's just a busy time of year for us, and trying to get everybody on the same page and make sure that you know all the information is delivered and that everybody understands what we're doing and why we did what we did. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's stressful, but it's fine. You know, kind of different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it must be so crazy to like to try to tease out bikes like to market things that normally would have a marketing campaign behind it. But now we're like, Oh, what do we, what can we even do? And it's in a way, I mean, for me as a guy who rides bikes and creates stories and stuff, it's exciting. But from a marketing standpoint, from a company, it must be a fever dream. Yeah. The, I mean, the marketing side is, is definitely a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, really like for us, from my perspective, like, it's getting product in hand and it's getting information to our sales reps, you know, cause we normally just meet face to face. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we had to invent everything kind of from the ground up instead of just being able to do it the way that we normally do. So what is your, let's just assume that the listening public here doesn't know who you are. Uh, what is, what is your title? What do you do at Kona? I assume everyone doesn't know who I am. It's easier that way. <laughs> um, yeah. 
My, my title is uh, product director. My name's Ian Schmidt and I've been working for Kona for nine years now. I, prior to that, worked at a bike shop that was a Kona dealer. Um, and that's how I got to know everybody and yeah, wound up here. So what exactly does the product director do? Uh, it's kind of a new position that I've moved into and currently in the process of defining, but basically a lot of the liaise in between the different groups from sales to marketing to product and sort of how product meshes into all those pieces, as well as kind of the direction that we're, we're moving, you know, it's a collective effort and I'm really fortunate to work with an amazing team. We had some really, really talented people in our, our department and, you know, it's a collaborative effort to bring everything to life. So, you know, just kind of trying to make sure we all stay on the same page and that we're moving the, the right direction and we're not getting lost in the weeds, you know? What's a day for you look like? Are you, so uh, Lacey told me that you were responsible for some of my personal favorite bikes. I love the Sutra. You know, I love the Rove. I love the Libre. What hand do you take in those as far as making them rather than they could be? Or as rad as they could be, I should say. Sorry. Yeah, it, it kind of depends on the each project, obviously. Um, you know, prior to this role change, uh, I was product manager. When I originally started as a product manager, I was I was doing all of the commuter bikes and uh, drop our bikes, that kind of stuff. Um, I called myself the product manager for bicycles without suspension designed for multiple surface applications because it sounded fancy. <laughs> That's not fancy. That was what I was doing originally. And then uh, we shuffled around a bit in the product group and I moved into handling the Hanzos as well as the process bikes. Right. And then, yeah, now just kind of continuing to evolve that role. So as far as like how a bike comes to life, the way I approach it for my projects, at least, is there is a long long list of items and they usually start out with non-negotiables like the bike has to be this right like this is what we're building the bike for this is who the customer is intended to be um you know and these are the features that are not negotiable you know like you on a basal level obviously it has two wheels and a handlebar and some brakes but as you kind of move up that food chain it's like how many water bottle bosses have to fit in this bike how many you know, what's the suspension travel going to be, or, you know, what's the tire clearance and what's the gearing options. And ultimately, like, as you move through that list, you get into a spot where, you know, in your heart, before you hand it over to your engineer, that that is, they're existing in conflict. And you're asking, <laughs> for, <laughs> you're asking for things that you know can't exist, but you're kind of curious about what the outcome is going to be from the conversations surrounding those conflicting items right and that's where sort of that long-term i guess not long-term but that evolution of concession sort of comes from and you know everything uh in life is the sum total of concession ultimately so you know it's designing a product is no different where you you know like a friday night like if there's a concert that you want to go to but your friend's having a birthday party you're going to concede something, right? And yeah. on a product development side, like having to approach it from, you know, I want this gearing option, but I also want this tire clearance. And one of those two things at some point is going to lead to conflict and you're going to have to concede something. Okay. So it's, it's trying to balance the concessions that you make and also making sure that the concessions that you do make uh, don't inhibit the actual defined purpose of the bike you know like if you're making uh, for example a like a libre right in an ideal world we would have been able to fit larger tires in the libre but we wanted a two by gearing option because two by is absolutely critical to a drop bar bike that's kind of styled like a libre so you kind of weigh those options and then you make a decision with your all the information you have and you try and pick uh pick the not the lesser of two evils, but the right one of the two concessions. You know, it's coming back to that birthday analogy. If this friend is an acquaintance and Ween is playing a show for the first time in however long, you're like, well, this guy's really nice and all, but Ween is playing. So, Are we talking uh, sober Christian Ween, like the new Ween or like old Ween? Because there's a, there's a whole other concession there. We're, too. Talking, we're talking old Ween, man. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. 
I, I don't have any friends that are that close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, if you do have friends like that, they'll be at the show with you. That's true. Yeah. Cool. So how do you come about like designing and working with the designers on the bikes? You just ride bikes all day. You're like, okay, like we're going to build out the Sutra Unlimited, which is a new bike in the line that people are raving about online. You're like, I'm just going to go shred this thing and then we'll dial it back and wiggle it in. Yeah. So, um, you know, no, <laughs> not really. Um, obviously like the role is, uh, there's a lot of work to do. And I think People sometimes uh, think, you know, like being a product manager is this like fairy tale land of cool new parts and getting to have like all the fun and go to exotic places and just ride bikes. But the kind of reality, at least of, of what I do, is that, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into producing any of that stuff at the onset. And even after you've gotten it into market, you know, there's always stuff that crops up that was unanticipated or whatever. So, like with the designing thing, uh, you know, I mentioned we have like a really strong team and a lot of diverse backgrounds. And, you know, we kind of leverage that information from multiple parties, like that's sometimes in our dealer base, that sometimes uh, athletes, you know, ambassadors, you know, we really kind of take a big picture of like, what, what are we setting out to build first? You know, like, obviously, um, if you're building an all new model, you're starting with zero, but if you're kind of refreshing and replacing something, you know, it's a little bit of a different process there, but yeah, I guess, you know, like we put the pen to paper and I always kind of say like, we, we don't really know until we start designing, like it's all well and good to live in this hypothetical world where, you know, these parameters all exist in harmony, but you kind of put the pen to paper and find out what, you can and can't do, maybe you make test bikes. Um, it kind of depends on the level of the project. You know, like if you're moving a couple water bottle bosses around, like you mock it up in the in the shop and you're like, yeah, this is fine. But if you are starting like a Sutra ULTD, for example, with all new geometry, not radical departure from what we already know, but like definitely a pretty good leap forward in geometry, you do a lot of examinations of like both the competition and your own line and your own experience. And then at a certain point, kind of make some conjectures about what you think it is going to be. And uh, then you make test bikes and find out, you know, most of the time, I guess at this point in my career, like usually like my assumptions are pretty close. Like there's maybe some small refinement or tweaking, but it's uh, the guesses are like pretty, pretty accurate. So when you go to add a new, so like, let's talk about the Sutra again, because it's been brought up. Like when you go in 2019, you're like, okay, we've got the Sutra Limited. Like this is the iteration of it for 2020. Are you already thinking like, how do we, how do we push this further for the next year? Yeah, it's really kind of maybe two years out. Um, okay. So, you know, like we're launching 21 now, we're finalizing design on 22 um, and wrapping that up and like, most of our projects are kind of going to tooling right now, like we're pushing forward on MY22. So, and basically like laying out 23 in the plan there. So you're kind of living like two to three years in advance of what, you know, what people actually see us delivering. And it's kind of an interesting thing where I always joke that, you know, about September 1st, if you didn't get the information about this year's bikes from me, I'm not going to remember it. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, obviously it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's also not wrong because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, talking about like the future at all times in our department. And then, you know, with our, our sales team living in the now, it is sometimes like there's a little confusion there, but yeah, you know, we're, we're looking farther down the road than just, you know, like we're re releasing 21 and we're not really like, I wouldn't say we're thinking about 22 right now, like 22 is in process um, and 23 is starting. So how hard is it to arrest that process? So say there's a 22 bike, say there's a fictitious Sutra Unlimited 2, right? But then there's a crazy trend out of nowhere towards like really short top tubes. I'm just making stuff up here. Yeah. How totally. hard is it for you to arrest that and, and dive in and be like, oh, we need to rethink this for the market? Yeah. Um, if you have, it depends on the project. Right. 
Like, so like bikes that are made out of tube sets, it's a lot easier to manipulate that and make changes. Um, maybe you have to modify some fixtures or things like that, but with metal bikes, you can usually adjust them pretty quickly. Uh, carbon is a whole other layer, obviously, you know, it comes out of a mold and that mold is a giant block of tool steel and is really expensive. So you don't really get to change those too much. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I have to ask, what is your favorite bike? I guess right now. And then also that you've been involved with of all time. Well, we'll start with the second question. This is, it's ironic. This is a question that I often ask people during interviews. <laughs> so it's cool to be on the hot seat once. Um, <laughs> for me, the favorite bike that I've ever had was a Schwinn Latour from 1972 that was made in Chicago. And okay. I got this bike from one of my best friends and he had this old frame in his basement. He's like, you should take this. And I was like, hell yeah. And it was kind of the bike that got me into riding. Um, you know, it always kind of flirted with, with riding bikes uh, up until that point. And it, you know, really kind of changed the course of my life. Yeah. And turned me into a true cyclist, you know, and that was the first bike I ever rode hundred miles on. Like it was, you know, a, a very strong tie to that particular frame. And at this point, that same friend that gave me the bike, I gave it back to him. I was like, you can never sell this. You have to keep this. <laughs> and he's like, absolutely. So whenever I visit him, I get to tool around on it. And Brad. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a little nostalgic kind of thing. As far as bike that I am the most uh, proud of or, you know, the most tied to, probably the Sutra LTD. Hell yeah. The one that came out in, gosh, was that 2017 model year? Yeah, the blue one. So that was a bike that I had always wanted. Something like that. Like a large tire clearance bike. And I... I'd always wanted something like that. And no one really made one like that up until that point. All the bikes that were in the market were, I had a bunch of ones from when I worked at the bike shop that were competitors versions. And my hatred of those particular bikes and their performance drove me to make the Sutra <laughs> um, because it was a, it was a self, an entirely selfish endeavor. And I wasn't sure that anyone would really understand it. But I pushed really hard for it and to make it. And, you know, luckily it worked out because as in life, as in kind of most things, um, if you follow your heart and, you know, take the time to actually think about something, usually you kind of end up in a good spot. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that bike for me was probably uh, one of my favorites. And I still, I get a, a, a flush of, emotion when i see one tooling around i'm like oh there it is <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's uh I, mean, I have a 2019 and got the sutra limited and was like oh hello and to this day i mean i have probably i, I have too many bikes i probably have four or five kona bikes that is the bike that unless i'm doing like snow deep sand or like aggressive single track i'm like i'm just gonna ride this i have two wheel sets for it i'm like I drive cross country all the time. I'm a photographer and filmmaker I'm all over the place. That bike has been back and forth across the country so many times because there's nothing. I, I love that bike. Yeah, and I think, I think the the thing that like makes me the happiest about like those all those drop bar bikes really is there. A lot of the stuff we make is entirely terrain dependent, right? right. Um, you know, long travel dual suspension bikes. If you don't live somewhere that's got terrain that warrants that bike, you're not you're not really getting much value out of it. Right. But with a Sutra or like a Rove or something like that, or a Libre, uh, you can be in Whistler and go for an amazing ride. And you can be in the middle of Nebraska and have an amazing experience on that bike as well. And it's kind of, yeah, it's just cool to have uh, given a lot of people that opportunity. Right. Um, yeah. To experience something that is, is really fun. And, uh, meaningful to me and yeah it's cool to share it and see it's it's funny i have a lot of friends who ride like tiny little brands and handmade brands and like it's got to be you know this thing or that and 
from them to my mother-in-law, who is a, she's a botanist for the Forest Service and every winter, it's a seasonal job. She solo, solo cycles across a continent. So she's done her country. She's done India, she's done China, she's done Africa. They all love that bike. Like that, that's like the unifier where like people can't be like, oh, it's a corporate bike. Like they're like, that bike is rad. Yeah, totally. That's a home run. So I'm told to ask you what, while we're talking about gravel-esque bikes, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, what is big gravel? <laughs> Uh, Lacey told you to ask that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> big gravel is the anti-category category. Okay. <laughs> um, my personal belief is that uh, gravel bike is whatever you make of it. You know, like a- any bike is a gravel bike if you go ride it on gravel roads. And the entire term gravel is this weird, like, toothless non sequitur of a statement because it kind of like tells people like this, you know, Oh, like, you know, doing this gravel race, like, you know, the, the race in Kansas, you know? Yeah. That That you should not say a lot right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, like it's, it's telling people that that's, you know, gravel riding. I, I just, it kind of galls me a little bit because it's like it just puts it in this box and those bikes in particular are the most free form exercise of any uh any product that we make you know there there are no rules and it, my frustration is when people start saying like oh it's a it's an adventure gravel bike and it's a you know it's a gravel race adventure bike for cyclocross and you know like they start just trying to break it down into these categories and it's just sort of like unnecessary and i think it's a disservice to people's imaginations and you know in our our current paradigm of, of the way the world is i imagination's uh, in short supply. It is. You know, it's funny, the other bike brand that I worked with, they didn't have to necessarily make like a special bike for it. They could just like kind of retool their cyclocross bike a little bit or like mm-hmm. retool a hardtail mountain bike and put drop bars on it for it. But also because from a marketing standpoint, they weren't set up to try to quantify something that's attainable by anyone, that anyone can go out and enjoy. They need winners. They need like a podium. They need some sort of like, like echelon to push, to promote, to use as a sales tool. And I think that's interesting because I think that flies in the face of what it's supposed to be. Like, I love that it's just, it's a bike that you can just go out and just, you're just, you're just fucking riding bikes, you know, like, and, and that's like the, the pure beauty of it. Like you're just riding bikes. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to is there are no rules, you know, yeah. like if you want to go ride downhill trails on your Sutra, they fucking go nuts it hurts but it's wicked fun yeah but it's it's silly it's stupid it's wrong it's everything that is right you know it's it's that expression of freedom and you know by creating like you said like that echelon that perspective of you know you have to be performance oriented in order to you know be able to market and sell the bikes i I think that's just that's short sighted of their company yeah, it's short-sighted, but it's also like a disservice to the the message we're trying to sell to all of our consumers as, as a collective industry. And yeah, you know, like I don't think very many people in the industry probably agree with my statements um, or feel as passionately as I do about it. But yeah, it's just kind of uh, putting things in a box and telling people what they are. Like I, I don't, I don't agree with that on those bikes. You know, when it comes to like a dual suspension bike, you know, you got a 160, 170 bike or something like that. Like, obviously, that's not a you're not going to ride cross country trails with it if you're using <laughs> the bike to its full potential. Right. I just get a process 134 and I ride it on the bike path. What's, what's wrong with that? Dude, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> the rail trail is shredding the rail trail. Yeah. So you're from Wisconsin, I hear. Uh, I am. Yeah. Whereabouts? Uh, I grew up in Crandon. So okay. Crandon is uh, near Rhinelander. It's a good spot. Just a little bit of your personal history. Like, how did that lead to you getting a job at a bike shop? And I know you said you went from the bike shop to Kona to product manager, but like, mm-hmm. that's a big leap. I mean, do you have a degree that supports that or are you just, you have a mind for this sort of thing? Um, 
So I went to college at Michigan Tech for two years, and uh, then I went to University of Milwaukee, transferred there, and went for another year and a half, and then ultimately dropped out and started managing the bike shop. And yeah, I just, you know, I started as an entry-level sales rep at Kona, and uh, then became a full-fledged sales rep, then became a product manager, then took on more responsibilities, and now do whatever it is I do. Nice. So, yeah, it's kind of a Cliff Notes version. Coming from northern Wisconsin, there is not much of a bike scene there. Um, you know, Crandon, Wisconsin is home to the Brush Run, uh, which is, you know, short track off-road truck racing. So you can kind of surmise what sort of demographic exists there. Some really lovely people, obviously, but, you know, it, it's definitely... Uh, I didn't fit in very well. <laughs> yeah, I listened to Frank Zappa, man. I was not, uh, I was not a pop country fan. So, um, oh man, yeah, that's that's got to be a rugged few years there, then. Yeah, it was, uh, but I mean, it, you know, it formed me into the person I am, and you know, I, I'm grateful for the experience having grown up in the woods. And I mean, Wisconsin as a whole does have like a pretty strong cycling scene. You know, like the um, Tour of America's Dairyland is there. The Wars series is one of the highest attendance race series in uh in the nation actually so like you know that's a off-road mountain bike race it's cross-country racing obviously there's not much free ride uh or downhilling in, in wisconsin but cape cod either yeah i mean there is a, a massive cycling scene there and i mean obviously trek comes from there they're out of waterloo and uh yeah you know it's just it's i guess like uh i got into bikes because of that sense of freedom. And then, you know, that freedom allowed me to go explore all these places by bike when, uh, you know, I didn't have a car and I just leave Milwaukee and go find places, right. And go ride places. And that sense of freedom just sort of like kind of kept growing and growing. And yeah, that, there's a lot of really beautiful back country roads in Wisconsin. Like it is, Fantastic. It is amazing. I just drove through it like a week ago. We drove out for a shoot out there. And uh, I also want to say Milwaukee, I had never really thought about it before and was there a year or two ago. And mm -hmm. it's it's an, um, it's a rad city. And there is like, it seems like it would be a super cool place to explore by bike. You know, right about the time I was leaving, which was 2010-ish, um, there's a really significant push it seemed from the like bike federation and the bike organizations to develop infrastructure and like the times i've gone back like i got to applaud those guys they've done a fantastic job of really implementing a ton of you know bike lanes protected bike lanes off off-road paths um and like really improve the interconnectedness of the city you know because back when i was there it was like just kind of starting to really come on the up and up and like become more of a more of a scene and uh yeah like the times i go back like i go right around all my old haunts and stuff but we don't have to do all these like you know you don't have to ride down kinnikinick you don't have to go on some of these like sketchy areas with lots of traffic and potholes like it's really easy to link stuff together now and milwaukee is a cool town man like, it is yeah there's a sleeper really good music scene there um, mm -hmm. there are some of the coolest bars that you will ever be able to patronize. I think my favorite thing is like where, you know, on the east side you're you're drinking beers and it just feels like you're sitting in someone's house almost because there's literally a house above it. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, there's elements of that that lifestyle that I do miss, you know. Uh, yeah. still get nostalgic about it, but are you in Bellingham? I am in Bellingham, yeah. Uh, I've been 9 years and a couple months now, so uh, the COVID thing, obviously there's a huge run on bikes. People mm -hmm. are talking about how people sold, like, you know, companies are sold out of bikes and even like the giant companies are sold out of bikes, mm -hmm. right? Are you running into any supply chain issues getting the new bikes made? I mean, there was a, so it was kind of like this rubber band effect, right? Where we were, we just kept going with all of our orders. We didn't change any of our ordering patterning, but, you know, all of the factories, sub vendors for drivetrains, whoever, all kind of took a hit with lockdowns, things like that. So like a lot of the, you know, rubber band effect we're kind of feeling now and just getting back through. So, you know, there were delays industry wide, but 
uh, we've been doing pretty well managing it overall, I would say. You know, it's just when you can't, when factories shut down and then you're finding out that, you know, this frame piece is made at this other factory that you didn't know about um, or whatever, like, you know, it, it just causes delays, but we're able to work through it. It took a lot of work, um, but we're, we're chugging along, so. Brad, and you don't have to answer this. Every major bike company, uh, when they release a bike, they have, you know, the drivetrain comes from one of a few companies, like, mm -hmm. but then they also manufacture their own parts. So like you have like the Kone handlebars that are on there, yep. for example. And obviously that's on some level a cost cutting measure because it's cheaper to just produce your own. But how designed are those? Like, do you just, do you put, a, is there a lot of effort that goes into being like, okay, we're going to make our own, let's let's use the sutra because we're talking about our own bar for the sutra. Let's just use a drop bar from a cross bike or are you like, let's engineer this? Saying we engineer it is maybe um, a bit of a stretch because there is kind of this balance of deferring to the expertise of the people who actually produce the product, you know, and especially with those kind of things, we're a small company, man. We don't have 60 engineers on staff, you know, it's it, like with handlebars, we like, for example, the Sutra bar, I worked really closely with our vendor and said, this is the shape and this is the reach number. This is the drop. This is the degrees of flare. You know, this, these are the widths that we're after. And then, you know, we work together to develop the bar. So it's a collaborative effort between us and, uh, and the supplier. And it kind of varies, you know, as obviously as you move down in price point, you have less and less flexibility and autonomy to kind of change things. And I mean, not to belittle it, but the seat post on Olenai, you know, our base model bikes are a do. Does it hold the seat? Are there any issues with it? You know, it's, does it come in sandblasted, sandblasted black and is it the right price? Um, yeah. You know, but as you, as you start moving up that, that food chain into, you know, more uh, enthusiast level product, that's where, you know, you have to work closely with your vendors and communicate what your needs are. Um, and that even, that even comes to, you know, talking with our, our bigger ticket vendors, you know, like other, like companies that are a couple of the big companies in the industry, giving them your feedback and being honest about what your needs are and what direction you're going is super important so they can provide you with something. You know, it's, as an OE, you don't want to just, uh, like we don't have the bandwidth internally to decide that we're going to make our own drivetrain, for example. Like that's just not even on the table, right? Yeah. But telling people what we need very clearly um, and communicating why and what those what that implications would be downstream for them. Do you, do you guys make custom bikes for your, um, not for your ambassadors, but for like your pro team? Yes and no, uh, custom paint and stuff like that. But, you know, generally they're riding the stock configuration. We take their feedback and compile that when we're developing new stuff that has implications for them. You know, like obviously if it's a cross bike, we're going to talk to Carrie and Rebecca, you know, downhill bikes or whatever, talk to Miranda and Connor. Um, and kind of get their their feedback, but generally they're just riding the the production bike. You know, every now and then we we make small parts or like things like a chain stay uh, or seat stay to change something like that. But it's it's largely just a, a production bike with different paint. So you said you work on the process. It's obviously a very refined bike. Like a lot a lot of thought has gone into that. How many iterations between model years will you go through? So like there's a two thousand 10 and then there's a 2011 are there like three or four like iterations between there where you're like all right let's see how this goes no not really um generally speaking that process kind of goes like from design concept to uh test bikes so we'll make like a an aluminum version if we're making a new carbon bike we'll make an aluminum version first and that's more of like a function test like we use stuff that we've already developed and kind of refined like whether it's geometry changes suspension tweaks things like that we kind of use parts that we already make to validate sort of some of the get the assumptions that we're making and make sure that we're not like off in the weeds and doing something really squirrely that we're not happy with so like we kind of go through that process and then we usually get like a looking sample uh which is either uh rp that's like cnc'd out of a big chunk of plastic or we get um, a 3D printed one, something like that. 
Um, and we do use a lot of 3D printing in the office, like just small scale stuff to, you know, make kind of sub assemblies of like, if we're changing cable routing, like how does this behave, you know? You know, obviously we've got a backstock of old frames that fire up the drill and go out there and go to town and see, like, see what it does. Cause you know, it's all well and good for something to function in a model the way you think it will. But again, it's just kind of that real world application, right? So then we kind of, after we've sort of vetted all of most of our concerns, then we open the tooling and then we'll receive our first samples, uh, usually just one frame size first. And that's like a full on ride test fit function. Does this do what we anticipated? And if there's any quirks, then we make adjustments with the vendor and then uh, sign off and the bike goes to production. And this is probably uh, a dumb question. But um, as someone who knows nothing about the bike supply chain, really, mm -hmm. when it comes to, so like different level bikes have different, say, shocks, right? Like rear mm -hmm. shocks. All those shocks behave a little bit differently. Yep. Do you take that into account between models? Uh, we ride test each one of those shocks on their respective chassis. So like 134 is a good example. You know, like the aluminum 134, we made an aluminum test bike and we tested you know, rock shocks, inline shocks. We tested, you know, the base model shocks. We tested the upper end, you know, super deluxe, select plus and ultimates. And kind of you go through and just make sure that each one is performing the way that you want it to. And then you work with that supplier to, you know, maybe it's just a volume spacer, right? That's all you got to yeah. change. Generally speaking, our shocks are pretty consistent spec wise across the board, but we do test all of them in the real world. And, you know, kind of when we're doing that design process, we, you know, like on a, a 153, for example, you are designing specifically for a piggyback shock with keeping the other shock in mind. You know, if you're making a hey, hey, you're not really building a hey, hey for a coil shock. You're looking at it as like, this is going to be a lightweight air shock, but you build in those other, other parameters that are, it will work with this, but you kind of set out with like, this is the target. And how do you determine paint jobs for each bike? So that's a collaborative process. We've got a really talented design team. Um, and as you'll see, as 2021 rolls out, there's some fantastic designs that are coming out. I got to applaud those guys for, you know, it's a, it's a lot to do, right? Um, it's yeah. looking at trends, you know, outside of the bike industry as well as inside the industry. It's looking at, you know, different methods of applying decals, different paint methods, all this sort of stuff. And... The decision is ultimately uh, comes down to a, a internal voting process and discussion that involves both sales, marketing, well, I guess not both, but involves, you know, basically a person from every respective department discussing and vetting any concerns. Huh. So how much attention do you as a product manager pay to say trends? I mean, trends is a weird one because like, what what is a trend right is a trend something on social media or is a trend like oh wow we sold a banana load of this bike obviously it's trending like how much attention do you pay to what other people are doing and what what the chatter is in the world and how much of it is just from your gut um well as far as like uh the direction of product like yeah like, you're talking about like the actual like a bike product. model yeah yeah yep um Pay a good amount of attention to like what our competition is doing, seeing, you know, obviously like X company releases new bike. Like I go and read the reviews about it. And if I can find the opportunity at some point to hop on one and ride it, I absolutely jump on that opportunity because, you know, every company has a different philosophy on how they're approaching suspension or geometry or whatever. And, you know, so like those are all, carried with us um, when we have these discussions about what a product is going to be. And then it's kind of a, you know, blend in between like watching what's going on in the direction of things, as well as saying like, what would Kona do in this instance? Like, what is a Kona bike and what does this represent and who is it for? You know, like there's a lot of uh, bikes that come out where I'm like, Ooh, okay. That's, that's, for that customer that maybe isn't that maybe isn't who we're shooting for to, to get as a customer though. Right. Yeah. Cause like, I, I think there's a lot of amazing bikes in the world right now. And some of them are positioned at specifically just being the fastest bike that they can. And I think it's 
obviously an admirable goal, but Kona is synonymous with fun. It's synonymous with playfulness. And, you know, to, to give that up just at the behest of like pure speed um, kind of isn't necessarily like the best decision. You know, a lot of companies say like, oh, we made this with our, you know, World Cup downhill racer in mind. And you're like, well, you know, there's plenty of people who will buy it, but might be better served on something that's designed for a more moderate riding pace. It's it's a it's a balance, like a lot of going with your gut and just experience of you know doing it, right? Being out in the woods and riding and riding different bikes is a huge benefit, you know, because they all interconnect in some way. Like I just started riding dirt bikes recently, and like that changed my mountain biking radically. Your bikes like motorbikes? Um, yeah. It just changed like the way that I interface with the, the bike entirely. You know, it's like, oh, plan farther ahead for your corners, you know, carry your weight here, put your foot here. Like, cause like on a dirt bike, you don't really, you can't really like force it to do what you want, you know, like really, really, really talented and strong riders obviously can. But um, being that I am what you consider a complete novice and terrible at it, it, you know, you don't really get the option of like, you have to be in the right place to make the thing do the thing. So it kind of changed the way that I, I ride mountain bikes and for the better. So if I were to go into your garage right now, what bikes do you have in there? Oh, uh, I've got an old Rove. That's a, was a first prototype of our 2017 model. Um, the setup is a 650 bike with Altegra drivetrain on it. I've done multiple rides over, you know, 150 to 175 miles on that bike. It's kind of my, it's got fenders. It's just kind of the bike I grab when I just want to go cruise. Really comfortable at riding at 17 or like 16 miles an hour. That's kind of like it's hull speed. If you want to go 20, the caloric deficit that you sink into is really drastic, but it will go 16 miles an hour all day. So that's kind of my cruiser. Um, I've got a custom Sutra that I built for myself and got like custom frame bags made by Porcelain Rocket and had my friend here in town, Greg, who does Donkelope Cycles, worked for me to build a custom rack that was built around carrying uh, specifically 36 figures. Are you right? Can I ask you a question? And this is totally a personal question. Yeah. Are you riding 650B or 29er tires on it? Uh, on the Sutra, I'm riding 29. 29 by 2.1 Nanoraptors. That's my, my go-to on that one. It just, it rolls fast. And with that bike, I'm never really in a hurry to get anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. And just like when you unload the bike at the campsite and want to make a run to town or something, like it's still fun to be able to kind of rally it. So uh, that's what I run on that one. And then I've got a, the new Hanzo ESD hardtail. That's my kind of cross-country bike and then uh, a new bike that's that's not out yet that's a long travel dual suspension bike and uh, yeah that's kind of my current livery of bikes uh, it kind of it kind of rotates too it's like whatever project we're working on that's kind of sort of the primary mountain bike generally speaking you know it's like we're working on this new project that's the bike I've been riding you know almost exclusively for the last couple months it kind of rotates. Like when we were doing 134, I pretty much only rode 134. I do always keep a hardtail in the stable because, you know, kind of. Because nice. they're wicked fun. Yeah. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're fun. And it's just something that, like, you kind of just, you don't really have to think about it. You just pick it up and yeah. start riding it. And it's like with the dual suspension bikes, like, the activity of using the bike correctly kills the bike. <laughs> So as the poster child, admitted poster child for unmedicated ADHD, the more I can mess with a bike, the more I like get lost in this madness of like, I got to stop and fix this thing. And so I've, I've had a ton of full suspension bikes, but I got away from it for a while just because it stopped being fun and started being like a math exercise for me to try to ride. I'm like, oh, I think it lost four pounds of pressure. I can feel the difference. And like, obviously I can't, it's all in my head. Yeah. But uh, it's nice to, to have escaped that and come back around to them. But yeah, I totally understand that. The simplicity is, is yes. Yeah. Nice. And generally that hard gel that I keep on hand is a single speed for that reason. Cause it's just like, it's the old friend, you know, it's yeah. like pick up right where you left off. You don't even really care if the fork works that good. Cause it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how the Rove is as well. It's just this bike that I do the 
basic maintenance. Like I just keep it running. Um, mm-hmm. and like I'll take the brake pads right down to metal. Like it doesn't matter. Like that thing just, I just run it till she's dead and I just pick it up and ride it whenever I want it, you know? And it's kind of that relationship is I think super important to have. And I mean, obviously we're both fortunate to have a ton of bikes. It's not the, the standard, but as, as we, kind of segue out of this conversation and thank you for taking the time. What do you see as, you know, I think, I think everyone having all this time on their hands because of COVID has brought people around to riding again. I think that's well documented, Mm -hmm. but what do you think is the next trend in bikes? I mean, right now it's quoting it's adventure bikes and like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, But what's the next, what's the next hot, hot maneuver? You know, that, that's a million dollar question, I guess. Yeah, but like... I mean, I can see it playing out a, a bunch of different ways. Um, I think in the current, the way the world's shifting right now, you know, people changing their their patterns. I think um, I think transit is going to become a huge segment of the market, and specifically assisted transit, mm-hmm. um, like electric electric bikes. That's going to become a huge piece of the market, as well as what people are are purchasing is. You know, it's all of a sudden, like, you don't have to go to the office every single day, but you still want to get outside and you want to go to the grocery store. You know, it's kind of that opportunity for the cycling industry to start seeing people get on bikes as not just a form of recreation, but that balance of recreation and function. You know, on the dual suspension side things, I think bikes are kind of arriving at this point where, you know, using the cheap and easy way, like kind of the motorsports analogy, like the geometry is pretty defined. You would be hard pressed to buy a bad bike at this point in the game, you know, like yeah. they, they all work admirably well. Well, um, they've been around long enough. There's a trickle down economics, even to like the base model bikes, like the exactly. base model bikes now are so much ratter than the high end bikes in like 1999. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like our $2,300 bike has a seat post that goes down when you push a button. You know? Yeah. And it and goes, actually goes back up multiple times in a row. Yeah. And which, it goes down, you know, you know, 200 millimeters on like XL, like pretty cool. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> I think on the adventure side of things uh, or like gravel or whatever you want to call it, I think you'll see people continue to, to evolve like what they're doing. I think we're in a position of leadership in that we have stepped out pretty far like the ULTD as as those geo numbers and stuff start to trickle out into the market we're going pretty far away from where we were before so it's kind of you know with that I, I think we'll we'll see a sort of a wall again as well like with geometry where it sort of starts to become like okay well is this a mountain bike or is this a road bike yeah um, and we're kind of I think we're approaching that pretty quickly the drop bar mountain bike is a thing that people that people do it. I have friends who swear by, you know, riding down in the drops on a mountain bike gives you more control over the bike than being upright with with you know mountain bike bars. I, I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest with you. I, it's harder for me to jump off the bike and duck and roll when I do something dumb yeah. with drop bars, and I do that a lot. So that's just me. But but it is interesting to see that that's becoming a thing. Yeah. I think it comes to to what your definition of of mountain biking is as well, right? Hundred um, percent. You know, cross country is anything you can ride a hardtail on, <laughs> <laughs> right? So yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can tell you, I wouldn't take my drop bar bike down most of the things that I ride on my hardtail. <laughs> so there's no drop bar process coming. <laughs> Maybe for April. Yeah, on April first, you'll see it. Nice. As far as we haven't yet, it seems like a bicycle pubes situation, actually. Yeah. Um, Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you. Uh, actually, I have one more question that I yeah, want to ask. How much inspiration, and there might be none, I might be just throwing this out there, but how much inspiration do you draw from music or arts when it comes to designing or like getting kind of the, the soul of a bike that you're working on? A lot. <laughs> um, I am not really super musical in as much as like, a, you know, I can play guitar a little bit. I played trumpet in high school, but I've always felt like a really strong tie to music as like a definition of life. And yeah, there's a lot of like when we're working on a project, like in my head, there are 
soundtracks, if you will, or playlists that sort of correspond to what the purpose of the the bike is going to be, you know, obviously, um, like, you know, you're talking about like a Sutra, uh, it's like very John Prine heavy, you know, some Grateful Dead in there. Like, that's kind of like what I envision, you know, tying into that bike is like that sort of playful nature of like songwriting. That's right. You know, and then when you talk about like a, like a dual suspension, really aggressive bike, um, definitely a little more Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> rain and blood is definitely a song that would play when i ride a full suspension bike yeah uh, but i'm accident prone i don't know I, you get the vibe there's sometimes and maybe i overthink design a lot you know i as a person who spends a lot of time thinking about creative pursuits but also like trying to get lost in the way other creative people think about things and like where they're coming from you know and i look at a lot of bikes because i have a bike problem uh mm -hmm you can kind of sometimes get a vibe from where the designer is coming from. And there's something that I've always felt with Kona bikes. It's, it's, there's a musical musicality to it. Yeah. And I, I, I think that is sweet to hear, man. Cause I'm glad I wasn't crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're still crazy, but don't worry about that. We all are. <laughs> Amen. Um, all right, man. Is there anything you want to leave this on? Anything you want to say to the world at large? I, I mean, just get out and ride your bikes and, uh, Buy more Konas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, buy them all. Yeah, yeah. man. Um, awesome. Ian, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Don James. It was good to talk to you. Uh, hopefully yeah. one day we can have a beer together. Someday, maybe we'll all get to travel again. It'd be yeah. amazing. Talking shit about a pretty sunset. Blanket and opinions that I'll probably regret some. Changed my mind so much I can't even trust it My mind changed me so much I can't even trust myself <laughs>